This episode of Commentary, Trek Stars, is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for iPhone, iPad, and iPod, Android, Kindle, Windows Phone, plus Mac or PC. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. Hello and welcome to Season 4, Episode 21 of Commentary, Trek Stars, a show which deals with the work of Star Trek creators outside of Star Trek. I'm Mike. I'm Max. And we are beginning a little two-part series on Robert Wise, where we're going to be looking at his work as the editor of Citizen Kane. Mm-hmm. But first, joining us this week to talk about Wise's work on Star Trek The Motion Picture is Larry Nemechek. How's it going, Larry? Hey, guys. It's good. This is going to be fun. Yeah, thanks for joining us. So con season is finally winding down for you? Uh, Pretty much. I have a little convention coming up in El Paso, and then I'm I'm very lucky and get to go to the uh, uh, Star Trek Destination London show. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It'll be my first time in London in like over 10 years, so I'm kind of excited about that. It's a huge show, so it'll be 2030, pretty big, pretty 20,000 people, so. Yeah, yeah, that sounds exciting. I, they they have a a lot of cool guests coming. Yeah, I have a ton of British fans and British people I've worked with that I haven't seen in ages. All the years of Titan and Fact Files and all these uh, Brits that I haven't seen. So I'm, I've got a lot of overdue visiting to do while I'm over. Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> all right. So this week we are beginning our series on Robert Wise. For those people who don't know, he is a legend in Hollywood. And uh, let me just sort of get through this uh, list of accomplishments so that people have sort of an idea of how big of a player he was. Have you seen movies? Exactly. Well, then you've probably <laughs> been influenced. He, he began his career in 1939 as an editor. He was nominated for his work on Citizen Kane for an Oscar in 1941, which he lost to Sergeant York. I still don't understand how that happens, but Citizen Kane has since gone on to be ranked number two on the Editor's Guild's list of the best edited films of all time. Uh, In 1944, he made the jump to directing. He directed a total of 40 movies, including um, some sci-fi films like The Andromeda Strain and The Day the Earth Stood Still, which uh, NASA ranked number four on their list of the most plausible Mm -hmm. science fiction films of all time. Uh, outside of sci-fi, he won Oscars for Best Picture and Best Director for both West Side Story and The Sound of Music, and both of those movies have stood the test of time uh, on the latest AFI Top 100 American Films of All Time list. West Side Story is number 51, and Sound of Music is number 40. So that's a, that's a lot of stuff. And then he also did Star Trek The Motion Picture. So... little thing <laughs> called that, yeah. Yeah. So, so, Larry, what, what what are your thoughts on Robert Wise in general? Are you a fan or 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 not? Well, no, I'm I'm a fan. I mean, it is. It, I did. I mean, I the first movie I ever saw was The Sound of Music because hmm. my I just my dad uh, was a purchasing agent and a warehouse manager for an electric co-op, the, the biggest electric co-op in um, Oklahoma. You know, the OE, the REAs type co-ops, 
And um, one of the electric suppliers, one of the sales agents that called on him was a big um, Julie Andrews fan. And he would always, we'd always have these big nights out every time one of her movies came out. And I, I remember the first time I ever went to a theater to see a movie was when I was, you know, teeny tiny. Was sound of music, but it always stuck with me because we went out to eat and we went to this. <laughs> now it was like no big deal, but anyway. But it wasn't until like years later that I kind of put two and two together, connected the dots, and went, "Oh!" And then I, you know, West Side Story wasn't on my radar, but later on, by the time I was in high school and college, I knew, you know, it was already out in the theaters before I was around to think about it. And then same thing, and then even more so with Day the Earth Stood Still. But it wasn't until the time of motion picture. And they announced who was going to be the director. That I went, oh, well, Paramount's really making a big deal out of this because they've got Oscar-winning director. You know, they're not messing around here. They've got Oscar-winning director Robert Wise. And and yeah, I think the coolest thing about this is and Kane thing. It just shows that the Oscars have always been screwed for hindsight. <laughs> <laughs> yes, this is true. That is kind of amazing. Well, what about you, Max? Or were you are you a Robert Wise fan? Um, I, I don't think the, it's it, that's I don't think it's a possible thing to to be a fan of somebody who essentially did all of the significant things before you were conscious. Because mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> like he like stopped making movies by the time I was um, I, an infant, mm-hmm. so I don't really know. But um, I, I, I I certainly had a big reaction to. Um, the Sound of Music about like the 90th time I saw it and I was like oh my god this is like in everything that was a weird sort of moment of realizing that uh, that, uh, that a movie had been influencing me by being influencing on every, every other thing in the universe for a very long time and then of course Citizen <laughs> Kane came around and I was like oh my god this is, this is the thing that the Simpsons are talking about always <laughs> In every episode. It's, it's your top ten list of cultural milestones that you need to be aware of, you know. Yeah, yeah. it's sort yeah. of, it's sort of yeah. like discovering that there was a world war in high school and going, oh, this is what all those old people are talking about. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, or, yeah. Or, or like the first year you watch The Wizard of Oz and you get all the, all the uh, puns. Yes. Yes. Oh, yeah. well, that's a horse of a different color, don't you know? Oh, I get it. Okay. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Except in that one, it's a bad example because it's all it's all it's all negative things that make you upset. Uh, well, yeah, I, I I also am, I guess you could say, a fan of Robert Wise. You know, I, I didn't see most of his stuff until I was older. Uh, you know, I guess the first movie that I did see of his also was Sound of Music because that was my mom's favorite movie, so it was on rather frequently in the house, and. Um, you know, it wasn't until, yeah, like high school and stuff like that that I did start seeing other things like uh, Andromeda Strain and The Body Snatcher and, and things like that. And and I was always really impressed by the range that he had as a filmmaker. He didn't really ever, even when he was making movies like Sound of Music and West Side Story, it, it didn't stop him from making like uh, The the Haunting, um, right? That was the one that he did. I can, I can never, he did The Haunting, right? Yeah. You know, right around that same uh, time period. But his work as a director, to me, I think is fine. But the thing that that really stands out to me is, you know, his work on Citizen Kane, which is why we're going to be talking about that next week. Because it's, I mean, that is truly um, 
remarkable. It's simultaneously very remarkable and also unbelievably bizarre. Yes, yes. We'll get into that next week. <laughs> so, so Larry, you touched on this a little bit, but, you know, I'm, I'm very curious because we've gone through this. I've personally gone through this seven times now, and, and you know, each time it happens, it's sort of a, like a really big deal to me. Um, the announcement of who is going to be directing the next Star Trek movie, you know? And and there's always, you know, people have a million opinions about it. You know, we just went through this in in a big way with Roberto Orsi, you know, uh, uh, and the announcement that he's directing uh, Star Trek 13. I don't know, whatever you want to call it. But this was the first time. Star you Trek know, 3 squared. There you go. But this was this was the first time that that the fans had to deal with this. And I'm really, really curious what the reaction was to the announcement that Robert Wise was going to be making the Star Trek movie, the only one. Well, okay, except this time it <laughs> See, the motion picture was not like I don't know, that I keep I keep comparing it to uh you know, I want to compare it to other things that you do for the first time. Um because <laughs> it's never the same later because the first time it's not just the, it's not just about the thing it's about everything that led up to it yeah and if you think the first if you think the first jj movie had a big lead up to it that was all based on the assumption that I mean, it's the, that's the only thing that comes close i think because that's the only situation where people started off at 0 and went from 0 to 60 because you know in 2005 People thought Star Trek was dead or it was dead for X amount of years. And then in 2006, they announced the bad robot deal and J.J. Abrams and everybody's like, oh, my God. And then there's the trickle out, you know, about, oh, this isn't canon. Oh, he's ignoring it. Oh, it's a reboot. Oh, you know, and all this Sturm and Drang, and that was close to it. But TMP, the motion picture, was, was, a, <laughs> was a pure thing because we, it, Star Trek wasn't a franchise it didn't have all this baggage. No one was scared of its canon of 700 hours. <laughs> I mean, it, was, it just was what it was. It was a little show that affected a lot of people maniacally like no other show ever had in TV. And it was this weird science fiction show at a time way before the top ten show or two on TV was about a bunch of geeks making references to Star Trek. <laughs> so, you know, culturally, it was still that show your parents probably said, oh, okay, you, you like that Star, that Star Trek show, right? Okay. You know, so it was the, – the first movie was all about – just fandom at first just kind of like not even having a it's almost like the guys in in um it's almost like uh, Roy Neary in um in um CE3K close I had to say the abbreviation before I could say the title <laughs> close encounters of third kind it's like he's driven to do something he doesn't know where he's going with it right when he's sculpting the mold, the devil's tower and potatoes you know mm -hmm, mashed potatoes mm -hmm. and doing the drawings he doesn't know what he's doing. That's the way fandom. I mean, it was like we have to have more of this. How can we do that? Uh, uh, we'll write stories with our character. You know, there had been fanzines, I think, and fans, you know, service, but nobody had um, really done that about a show. And so, like everything about the '70s, the first wave of fandom was 
figuring out a just how to keep reliving it for yourself. And and sorry, kids. No, I mean there were a couple of people that tried, that actually did films on film film in the seventies, but it was not like there's a new fan film popping up everywhere. I mean, fanzines and then conventions were kind of originally an expression of fan creativity. I mean, you know, they, you know, they became. And that was what doomed some things because they were more that than they were a business. They need to be a business too. But the 70s were all about people just trying to grope their way back to having this thing still be in their life, damn it, because it had affected them so much and they couldn't get rid of it. And if you want to say it's addiction, it was addiction, but it, you know, it could open people up. And then within a few years, I always lumped the bicentennial in with Star Wars because the bicentennial was the most hyped – marketed thing people we were all sick of it before it finally got there and then on the day the 4th of July day but, but i remember like the class before me was the class of 76 and the when they sat down to order their graduation announcements they had four choices and three of them were red white and blue themes and one of them was school colors and they were like well hell yes school colors we're all sick of the bicentennial you know it was kind of funny and but then everybody you know we were all very patriotic and loved the day but it, by the time the marketing got, and and I just I thought it was funny because Star Wars was like the next year after and notice I say Star Wars and not Episode Four A New Hope it's Star Wars <laughs> anyway um, the the marketing for that was you know such a big and that set the bar but Star Wars would not have been what it was without the baby steps of Star Trek fandom just right on the heels not right on the heels right before it. You know, Star Wars came right on the heels of the first explosion of Star Trek in 73, 74, 75. And not just for fans, you know, then TV Guide has the article where they first used the phrase Trekkie, and it became this thing. You know, oh, look, it's those Trekkie kids having another one of those conventions. Well, isn't that cute? And isn't that weird? And, you know, and forget the fact that there are plenty of 40 and 50 and 60 year olds running around enjoying this. It was all about the kids and the pointed ears and the Spock shirts, you know. And in hindsight, forget about the fact that three-fourths of this is being led by women, you know, another one of my soapboxes. So that's what the 70s were. And finally, when everything kind of started solidifying and things happened so fast, by 73 and 70, oh, 73 and 74, the first nudge, you know, is the animated series. The animated series, everybody needs to know, was not just another DVD box on the shelf. The animated series was this little bone thrown to Gene or Gene's, you know, campaigning. For revival, well, let's see how we do in animation. You know, animation's cheap, and Saturday morning, let's see how it. You know, plus they had that thing then at the time of animation being. You know, they would do redos of it. You know, they would do um, Harlem Globetrotters, and they would do the Brady Bunch, and they, you know, animation. Yeah. So they were doing like a you know existing adult things. You know, animorphed down to you know anima- uh, filmation or whatever. Whoever was doing it. So all of that were like baby steps along this path. Groping toward, you know, I'm sure Gene going, how can I keep this franchise alive? Fans going, how can we keep this alive? And Gene, you know, being broke and doing his college tours to stay money because none of his pilots were selling because the, I guess the suits still thought of him as that troublesome guy, <laughs> you know, the producer that gave him hell on Star Trek. So all of those things were coming together. There was no clear path. That was, and when we do the movie, there was no nobody to do this. They were groping toward the whole. Then they announced the small budget movie finally, and everybody's like, woohoo, woohoo. And then it's bumped up to a bigger movie, woohoo. And then it's like, okay, well, Paramount wants to do a fourth network, you know, before 10 years before Fox. And it's Barry Diller, ha, doing it. And Star Trek's going to be the flight. 
Stop me if you've heard this before. Star Trek's going to be the flagship of this new network. Woohoo! <laughs> Only it was the fourth network because Fox was 10 years away from existing in the 80s, but this was the 70s. And I remember being a kid, read, you know, and then another layer, no internet, no 5,000 cable channels, maybe a couple of bare, you know, bones ones starting up. You had the, still had the three main guys in PBS and starting to have baby cable, you know, baby HBO in the 70s and baby... ESPN and A and E and all that. So um, run by babies. The wire run by babies. babies. Well, if you look at their early decisions, you'd get that. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, but but you know, and then you had the media to get it to you. So I remember being a kid getting TV Guide, and the week, and there was a guy. I can still see it. There was a yellow page, like it was a teletype page. It was called uh, TV Teletype by Neil Hickey, and it was like little. It was like the the trade papers equivalent, and they would have little blips about what was going on in the industry in one page in TV Guide. And I remember the and I cut it out and clipped it. It's in my clipping file still of the the week they announced that there would be this um, that there wouldn't be a movie which you could barely read about. There was nothing organized to read this stuff in, right? But I remember reading how they were going to have a TV version of Star Trek returning to TV, which was about step three or four along the way. And like, okay, great, fine, whatever. And then, you know, about nine months later going, no, it's not going to be a TV show. It's going to be a movie. And going, oh, well, okay. But what my point is here is there was no blueprint. There was no expectation. There was nothing guaranteed. And, and, and we do know as fans that if it hadn't been for the success of Star Wars, there would not have been a motion picture. It would have probably gone, gone ahead and just been, you know, phase two. And that, but that, you know, in turn, there wouldn't have been a Star Wars as big as it was if Star Trek hadn't jumped, did a jump start and gotten science fiction, even if it was pointed at, you know, goofingly by the mainstream media. Um, there, you know, Star Wars might not have been as big as it was had it not been for the fr- the the groundwork that Star Trek had laid just a couple of years before. So the whole thing about Robert Wise being a director, the only thing that kind of penetrated to me at the time was. Um, and it didn't even get it until like even a few weeks and months later. But it was just like – that was just one of many announcements being made. When they came in and did the huge old-style Hollywood grand treatment on the movie, mm-hmm. Robert Wise was just kind of the cherry on top of signaling what they were going to do. It was like, okay, by God, because that was, that was when Star Wars was a hit and every studio in town was going, quick, we need a sci-fi movie. That's the hot new thing. You know, and, a lot of, and Disney did Black Hole, you know. And uh, Spielberg did CE3K, and every you know, and lots of schlock was put out there. Oh my God, you know it, it was you know. So Paramount was like, no, we're Paramount Pictures, and we're going to do this right. Get Oscar winner Bob Wise to do this movie, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And that's basically that's basically what it was. And as a kid, some of that was lost on me at the time, but I kind of very quickly once all the blurbs started, you know, coming out. Uh, you know, and you'd get those little. I mean, they spent so much money on the show and promoting it. I remember getting the little souvenir things at cons, and I was just barely starting to go to cons then, like '78 and '79. But Robert Fletcher went into the vaults at Paramount and got these hundred-dollar a year fabrics to use on Alien Ambassadors that had last been used, you know, in the Bible epics and Gone with the Wind. And then you you'd see the movie and know, oh, that guy. Down there in the background of the shuttle scene <laughs> for five seconds. That was the big PR, you know, but it was like all this money spent and old time PR and promotion put into it. So, so yeah, so I was, I was a kid when they announced Robert Wise, 
it soaked in on me eventually, but it was also right when I was coming of age, you know, all of this. But bottom line is the movie was the pinnacle. The movie was the reason why fandom existed in the first place because people wanted Star Trek back. And the movie was the fans' victory. It was like a populist revolt. It was like the, the mobs have taken over Hollywood. <laughs> At least that's the way everybody out you know, in, across the country thought of it. Yeah, yeah that, that's kind of the impression that, that I, I got you know, th- looking at it you know, now because it, it, he does seem like sort of an odd choice in terms of you know, just saying, like, we, we want to make a Star Trek movie. Oh, yeah, let's get you know, the dude who did um, Sound of Music. That makes sense. I mean, it, it really does seem like they were trying to make a statement and saying, like, we're doing this for real, and this is going to be a real movie, you know, by, by, by real filmmakers and not just something yeah. which is just an easy cash grab, you know. And that, that to me, makes a lot of sense, you know. And, um, but I well, you know, we talk about, we talk about the, the blockbuster movies now and how – and I think we've talked about it on your show. I know I have on others – about how part of people's – if you have a problem with J.J. Abrams, especially with Into Darkness, with all the, you know, all effects, no heart or whatever – but part of that is thinking they have to have the little, you know, Japanese movie guys flying through space helmet first stuff because they have to compete with an Asian sensibility because it's all about the global market. Mm-hmm. And, if we're ta- and, and, and that's driven by the fact that every other studio has all their big shows and Paramount, like Star Trek, is their biggest franchise, their biggest tentpole, and they've got to compete. Well, it was, a lot, it was the same mentality – in the late 70s when Star Wars came out, everybody was scrambling. I mean, if you were a fan – now, I was a baby. But if you had probably been – if you had been in your 20s or 30s and 40s and you had been a science fiction fan and you saw those glimmers in the 50s with Day of the Earth Stood Still and mm-hmm. Forbidden Planet, you know, you saw the glimmers of what could be on in film on a, in a big screen. And then there was so much – you know, the 50s B-movie stuff that was called science fiction and it was just schlock. Or it was handled so badly, or the cheap stuff on TV, or whatever, you know. Um, you were, I mean, that's why Star Trek on TV was such a revelation, because it wasn't all that. But even on a movie, when you think you have a bigger budget, you know, and there's just all those things we love to hate now, you know, and Plan 9 from Outer Space is just the tip of the iceberg. But so much <laughs> drivel was put out saying, look, guys, you know, which gave it a bad name. Science fiction, you know, and people are like, fine, I'll just go back and keep reading my books, which I can depend on to be good if I find the author I like. And, you know, so um, the fact that this science fiction boom came out and it was this quality thing and you couldn't get by just on schlock, although lots of people tried. I mean, that was – if you were a fan that was old enough to get it and been around a little bit, it was such a revelation, such a great time to be around. Oh, my God, they're doing quality Sci-fi and some other stinkers that people are rushing out there just to cash in, you know. And then there were younger kids that just loved the wham bang of Star Wars too. That would go to anything at the time. So Paramount really felt like they had to put their brand out there, and this was their. I mean, I remember reading somebody. I forget where I remember describing this. It's like so. Star Wars is a hit. So in the first month after Star Wars, and all the you know all the news stories about kids lining up around the block and camping out to get their tickets to see Star Wars for the how many times have you seen it? I've seen it nineteen. How many times have you seen it? I've seen it twenty five. How many you know pre tape, pre video tape, pre anything? You go to the movie and then you watch the reruns on TV years later. You know, or you go see it in a festival thirty years later. That's how you saw movies, right? Yeah. So 
So all the news stories pointing out how many kids in your town, how many times, who's the leader, you know, how many times have you turned over Pac-Man? Okay, how many times have you seen Star Wars? <laughs> and that's the goober news story, you know, of the night. And the studios within a month are going, okay, guys, we have to respond. It's almost like some, you know, United Nations meeting. <laughs> we have to respond. And what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And the fifth guy, it's almost like something comical, like out of, you know, right stuff or something. Oh, wait, we've got Star Trek. Oh, right, let's do, jump on that. Wait, they're about to make a TV series out of it. Well, hell with that. <laughs> Stop it. We're going to make a movie out of it. Okay, I mean, that's... The, yeah, the narrative to me has always been sort of like, like, oh, they were off doing their cool little thing, and then Star Wars was big, and so all of the guys in the suits went over to the set of Star Trek with their briefcases and said... We're running this now. <laughs> that's that's kind of you know, and then you read about the stories about when they were just about to they were about to shoot and they were doing the set tests, you know, the the film tests that we have and Phil Collins was the director who was gonna direct in thy image. And they just they 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 practically it was almost as bad as picking up variety and seeing they're gonna do a movie based on the original pilot for the new series that's now been yanked and you're I mean, they knew about it, but it was like, you know, within a week, they only knew on like on a week's notice or something. I mean, the think, the, the, you know, the inner sanctum movie think tank yeah. kind of uh, kind of sprung it. But and a lot of people were, you know, a lot of people were expecting to have a big job and, you know, poor, you know, like David Gattro, who was going to be Zahn and, you know, all those things. But this is about Robert Wise, I know. But that, it was a, and, but again, there was no expectation because there was not a script written. I mean, you know, there was not a life script written for this. People just wanted to Star Trek back somehow, damn it. Would you guys quit screwing around? Because the other thing was people, we had been teased. All those stories about all the, you know, the Titans and the save Kennedy from being shot and Harlan talking about his famous, you know, stupid Paramount executive. Oh, what can you put some Egyptians in it? You know, <laughs> that story about seeing a movie. So, you know, we had been living through that for three, four, five. We'd been teased so much and it would get started. And the cast, too. The actors will talk about we're doing this, okay, great. Then it's yanked, or then it's okay. Here's the, those two British guys, Bryant and something. Their script, you know. Oh, here's the thing. And, and, and by then, the way the, you know, Starlog had started by then, and and there'd be a column, and then David Gerald was writing his column, and and I forget who else. But you know, the, the, that was the way you got drips and drabs by then, and you would, oh no, it's been yanked. Okay, oh, their script is over, and um, I don't know. I don't know if you know. It's it's this is apples and oranges and crazy talk. If we'd had you know anything halfway resembling social media, much less you know daily daily cable, if we'd had Entertainment Tonight even back then, as opposed to like about the time of Rathacon and Search for Spot coming out, you know how that would have been different or what the dynamic flow would have been differently. But that's what it was at the time. And if you were a little kid out in Podunk, Oklahoma, trying to get your crumbs of news. That's that's how you got it, and so you know we were just like, "Will you get on with it already? Damn it!" And you know, at the same time, thinking you had power, but you didn't really when it came right down to it. And then finally, just going, "Finally, they're doing it. Okay, great." And um, you know, and then it opened. Well, well, go, going back to something for for a second there, um, because you said something earlier that that I thought was really interesting, where you were like, "Oh, they're going to do it as a show," and then, "Oh no, no, wait, it's going to be a movie." And it sounded like your reaction to that was disappointing. Like, were you hoping for a show as opposed to a movie? It wasn't like, oh, man, I'm going to get to see it on the big screen. It's like, oh, I'm only going to get two hours of this stuff now. I mean, is that what your reaction was? I don't know. If that came, you know, I don't even, I don't even remember how I, 
thought about it. Yeah. If that came out in my – maybe that was subconsciously coming out or if it's – or not coloring <laughs> my attitude you know, all these years later. But um, as far as you know, modern track. But I mean I – there may have been a piece of me at the time that went, okay, well, big budgets are nice, but um, – I'd rather have like 20, you know, or or 40 hours. No, not, you know, I'd rather have 20 or 22 hours of this than uh, two. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know. I, you know, I don't know if I was sophisticated enough to think that way then or not. Maybe I, maybe I was getting there. But I really think what was driving it was just, I mean, I didn't understand the ways of Hollywood and the fact that, okay, well, these guys, these are all still actors who mostly have not had big successes so they would all be amenable to working TV show hours again to come back on this and finally make some money that they're supposed to be so damn famous and yet none of them have any, you know, <laughs> none, of it, none of it's good. They were on the old, you get one showing in a rerun residual and that's all there is because that's all there is, contracts, before the world changed, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, uh, oh, residuals for life, yes, because that will happen now. Um, so, I, you know, and, and they weren't too decrepit to keep up with on TV you know the demanding thing on your body of it. You're not too old to do TV, yeah. So um, because it's ridiculous hours. So um, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I just um, we were just we were just wanting the back the thing back. Damn it. Yeah. Okay. So then it came back, and you saw it, and what was your reaction? Yeah. Well, okay, so well, let's, let's build up a little bit. Let's okay. talk, how about the summer before? Okay, fair. And, yeah. I, and yeah. one of the first two or three conventions I went to was down in Dallas, and everybody was like, they're going to show the Star Trek trailer. They're going to show the Star Trek. You talk about now? Mm-hmm. Okay. They're going to show the Star Trek trailer. They're going to show the Star Trek trailer. Oh, okay. And all it was, and I don't know if you remember this or not, there was an ad that I remember really well because it was in the back of like magazines and comic books. And it was one of those artist renditions of the Enterprise, which was great. That's like what you got for ages. You know, at the at the press conference, Mike Miner's drawing of kind of a not cartooned Enterprise, but the new look of the Enterprise was out pretty early. The basic look in an artist kind of rendition. And if you've ever seen, I think they're mostly. I know there has to be color somewhere, but they're mostly black and white pictures of the press conference announcement where everybody is in the picture. Mm-hmm. Uh, Persis Kambata is there with her hair still, and it's got a big Star Trek the motion picture thing with the with the ship and these two like lateral lines going out from each side of it, which was kind of the logo on their stationery. And everybody's lined up in a big line, and Gene and Robert Weiss are there, and all the cast is there, and they had this big sit down thing. At bang, you know, it reminded you of the old days too. Not that I knew. Now I know it's how they used to roll out the big, you know, in the 30s and the 40s. It's how they would roll out the big movies, and they went back to that again. And so we were all like, okay, when's, when are we going to get the, you know, the little peaks and when are we going to get the stuff? And I remember at this con, in the heat of summer, they were like, we're going to show the trailer. We're gonna show. And finally it comes on, and all it is is this voice. And I know this is documented somewhere. I'm just going to go my memory right now. But it's like – it was like all the catchphrases they used to market the movie. You know, like uh, – what was it? Is the future is the, happening the now. The human adventure is Yeah, just the human adventure is just beginning. Yeah. The human adventure – is just beginning. And it was just stills in art form of the ship flying at you. Like, <laughs> still fade to be a still closer, to be a still closer, you know, like it's coming at you and tilting, you know, like it's not just flying at you head on, it's like tilting like, you know, 10, 20 degrees, you know, coming at you, but it's like going to do a barrel roll coming at you or kind of a thing. But just kind of tilting and showing off this. 
And then it went by, and, and then it comes, you know, Star Trek The Motion Picture, opening December 7th. And we were like, that's it? <laughs> I sat in this crowded room sweating in Dallas in June for nothing? What? That's it? We were all, people were so pissed. And that's kind of the first time. And I'd already, there'd already been the news about they fired Robert April. They, they you know, because <laughs> when Hollywood panicked about the science fiction, what they were really panicking about was, we have to have a movie with a lot of special effects in it. You know, because that's what part of the lesson of Star Wars that went to people in Hollywood was you got to have all these new whiz bang computer effects, not CGI, just, you know, motion capture, motion control, not yeah. motion capture, motion control, you know. And you've got to get guys that know how to do that. And there was no ILM then, you know. I mean, they, the guys that did ILM were finding their way. And the fact that even my – now I've been in college a year or so, and my brain was going, they're supposed to be out in December, and they fired the guy doing visual effects? Hmm. <laughs> and what was his claim to fame? Oh, he did all the 7-Up commercials, all those psychedelic 7-Up commercials. And even my little brain then was going – Okay, so it's not my business, but if you've got this huge movie that's trying to compete with Star Wars and you got taken in by the guy that did 7-Up commercials, the snazzy sci-fi looking start, you know, that's 60 seconds at a time or 30 seconds. At a time. So then I just remember about how everybody in Holly, I mean, I remember reading then in my little meager way you were able to read about it, which was like in the regular magazines because there was there was Starlog, but that was like every 2 or 3 months or they were ramping up, but Yes, every two or three months, I said, for one news story. But, um, you know, I was like going, oh, my God. Every, I, I remember having the image at the time of everybody who could know that's a rocket <laughs> was slamping, you know, was painting models and cutting film and stuff. I just remember – and since then, talking to people like Greg Jean and the people that were around then going, yes, me and my brother and my three cousins who were eight, nine, and ten were running around helping be grips at model stages. To, you know, it was like literally – the entire city of Los Angeles, anybody who could do the then still burgeoning young thing of new up, ramped up ways of doing visual effects, not 40s, 50s ways of doing yeah. visual effects, you know, opticals, everybody was working. And they shipped, the, you know, they shipped the film cans wet to the movies on the 7th because they'd set that date in stone and they were not going to miss it because it was Star Trek and Paramount could not lose face if that movie was not delivered on time. So – and then the ultimate thing though was my memory of that was – oh, and it was on Parade Magazine Sunday beforehand. I remember going, oh, when you got the first movies of the new pajama uniforms, you know, yeah. the leisure suit stuff. And we're like, oh, OK. Well, that looks drab. But OK, there they are. Who cares? <laughs> there they are. Look, they're really shooting it. OK, wow, cool. The crazy and, thing there uh, is that at some point Parade Magazine was relevant. <laughs> I'm telling you guys. I'm telling you. <laughs> I know, and I still have that one. But, um, <laughs> All right. Go parade. But, uh, of course, man. <laughs> but because um, it's flat and it, you know, it stores flat for easy storage. Um, but uh, but then then the week. Oh, then the, personally, the weekend it opened like Friday, December seventh. And my other part of me was going, "You really want to open this on Pearl Harbor Day, guys? You really want to open it on Pearl Harbor Day? Okay, just that memory. Uh, we were, you know, we were a lot closer. It was only thirty years. It was only forty years away then. Yeah, um, too soon. Yeah, too soon, too soon. We're going to redeem the day. We're going to redeem the day. So here's the thing. Just me personally, our, my, I was in speech and theater, and my college, we had a high school speech theater festival that we always did in the spring and in the fall. In the fall, I mean, at the end of the semester because it was like you know good recruiting for high school kids. And all, we all had to judge. And our high school speech and theater festival fell on the first weekend of December. 
and there was no way <laughs> we could get out of judging Friday night to go see motion picture. And, you know, my two or three best friends, half of them who were the guys that were with me at the Con of Wrath, uh, the guys who all, you know, my friends who all, we did our first little mini cons in college and my, you know, buddies early on like that. None of us could get away because we were all stuck judging. So we, I, here's the footnote to history. I did not get to see motion picture until December 8th. Mm. But we all made a big trip from Ada up to Norman, went to Satellite Twin, stood in line, got in. I even took my little brother with me <laughs> who, went to, who went to – and my opening – and we were all there, and you know, everyone's so expectant. And, and what's the first image you see when the credits when – the, when the movie rolls? You remember? A Klingon D7? Um. Well, yeah, basically, except it's three and it's not the D7. It's the – it's the new souped-up one. Okay, whatever. Yeah, but it wasn't yeah. in the script. Whatever. Come on. Right? Uh, the oh, only reason why I know that is guys, because you're not, you were like... You, don't have an, you never have tech heads on your show, dude. Sorry. Anyway, so I just... Here's my other memory of watching the movie. Well, I have several. The first time, sitting in, sitting in my you know, recliner rocker theater chair and not knowing what I, my body was doing because I, the first thing I was conscious of was going, oh, my God. These are like these are like the souped up these are souped up Klingon battle cruisers. In look at the detail on these things. Oh my god! Oh my, and the next thing I knew, my brother had his hand on my chest because I had leaned like just viscerally leaned so far, like trying to get closer to the screen that I had like leaned way forward in my seat where I was probably almost up to the neck of the person in front of me. And my brother was like pushing me back, going, "Will you really sit back? You're embarrassing me." And he was younger than me. And he was just as big a nerd about his stuff as he could be. But it was like, I was like, it was the first, I was like, oh, it's like my mom, you know, learning how to drive. And my mom, you know, like, kind of like gripping the, the seats around her while I was first, you know, or putting her hand up on the dashboard when I was learning how to brake. Only <laughs> he had his hand on my chest, kind of pushing me, will you sit back? <laughs> You're embarrassing me. Stop that, it. That weird, that weird I, mom DNA of like putting, pushing yeah. your hand in front of you like, no, this is dangerous. I don't know what this will accomplish, but I feel the need to do this. But it got me. It's like I had not even consciously done it, but I leaned forward to see because it was like, oh, my God. But you were just nerding out because this is the phrasing of our time now. But at the time, you were, I was just like. Oh my God. And then the movie goes along, of course. But it, and then you do the, the reverse pan because we're fo- – you'd never seen that on a little – it suddenly made you aware of just how small the series had been. You didn't hate it. It was just like, oh, my God, this is a movie. And we're going to be able to have detailed models that we approach and then pan past as they go on by us. Yeah. It was just kind of blew your mind. And, um, and then the movie went on, and, it got, and, you were, and the opening was great. The reunion scenes were great. And, uh, and I remember watching the ambassador scene on the shuttle bay go by and go that's it that's you couldn't see any of those people (laughs) (laughs) and then uh and then getting to about the third act and and going okay this okay (laughs) this has gotten kind of somewhere along we're going this has gotten kind of slow but okay it's still we've waited 10 years for this that was the underlying thing we've waited 10 years for this we've waited 10 years for this and all that crap the last few years and then it ended and we were like Okay, and you were thrilled, but there was still this like little empty piece of you, you know, going, okay, I'm so thrilled to see them all, and it was such a big story, and I, I, I think I'm missing something, but I don't know quite what it is yet, but 
It was so cool to see them. We have to go back. And part of it was we have to go back at least 40 times and beat those Star Wars guys. Mm-hmm. You know, even though I went to Star Wars five or six or seven times, I was just annoyed that it had become a thing. Yeah. <laughs> and even yeah. more so that their guys suddenly, it was better than Star Trek. So it's like you're comparing a movie to 80 hours of TV shows. Will you shut up and get a clue? You know, I mean, that was kind of my ad. It's like, you can't, it's apples and oranges, guys. Come on, it's not the same thing. And then the motion picture came out, and then there was a little bit of, ha ha, you know. But it still made a ton of money, and we went, I saw it five or six or seven times, you know, about the same amount of times I saw Star Wars. But uh, it was also a good babysitter. It was like, can you and your brother go see uh, Star Trek again? Yeah, sure. Okay. Um, <laughs> But yeah, and but after three or four or five times thinking, uh, I, the second or third time I actually like dozed off in the third act, <laughs> mm-hmm. the infamous third act, <laughs> when the endless you know staring at the screen, yes, segments you know. The so yeah, that's part. that's kind of the wrap up of my, of my, um, you know, the, the memories I remember having of of actually going to see it in the theater, and all this time, Robert Wise is supposed to be the topic. Well, the whole related. thing about it being Robert Wise was not really, you know, in the Hollywood business end, and I wasn't, you know, reading the trades. I wasn't even subscribing to Interstat yet, which was the next best thing to finally getting to the internet stage of fandom, where you had something every month that was just tailored to to fan, the letter comment zine fan, uh, Interstat. And Dixie, uh, what's her name? Dixie's clipping. She would take stuff from the trades and stick it in, and that's when I finally started getting aware of, oh, there's the business. And when they say, you know, para ankles vp you know and it was like trade speak you know yes um but that you know that was coming that was all i was halfway through college and that was all going to start happening real fast and and then the turnaround came for ratha khan and the fact that then you learn that oh you know the the awareness of now in hindsight going back and not being happy and gene being demoted and charles bluthorn taking it over and and giving it to you know hard bennett and can you make a movie cheap you know you know, Mr. Bennett, can you make a, you know, that whole little story Hart Bennett tells about, can you make a cheaper movie for this, cheaper than this? And he's like, sir, I could make four movies for the price of this one or whatever. And then going and getting Nick Meyer and then... At least half of them will be watchable. Yeah. (laughs) You know, and all that. But, you know, that kind of started, you know, things were speeding up and everything was starting to change. It was the 80s. And, uh, you know, and and information was coming a little bit faster and stuff. Shoulder so, pads, uh, cocaine. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Hey. So, um, you know, soon we had Entertainment Tonight. And then people were actually being, you know, and, and videotapes were suddenly not costing $80 a piece. And, you know, VCRs. And stuff. So <laughs> VCRs weren't $400 and, or $800. So everything started speeding up and, and people got savvy. We all, we all got savvier and savvier over the years. But that first movie was like in a lot of now that I think about it this way it was like it was a lot of and partly cuz Par- Paramount was coming out of there a little bit and Paramount had, had a weird itself as a studio in the 70s there was not really you know they'd been sold and and what Jaffe was in charge and they'd done the Godfather and there were three or four movies that kind of saved the studio and Warner's was everybody else was adapting to doing TV production and that was you know Warner Brothers was doing that Universal was doing that and Paramount was a little behind the curve so yeah. um but all those kinds of things you don't I don't know at the time, but but they really did give the old Hollywood treatment to the motion picture. 
from you know Robert Wise. Now that I think about it, the way they just did the press and the announcements, and they decided it had to be a big blockbuster to compete with everybody else, and so we'll get Robert Wise. And you know, Robert Wise, hey, Day the Earth Stood Still, even though that was you know <laughs> twenty five years before, yeah, yeah, <laughs> or yeah. whatever. There's, I mean, like I do, I do tend to think like the old Hollywood thing of motion picture and that weird like like business decision to turn this project into a money making scheme. Like Robert Wise was certainly a figure in that, but like I do have to give it to him that like ultimately Star Trek is still there. Like they didn't throw out anything important; it just got slowed down in order to have a really giant opening and tons of cool visuals and promote the hell out of it as a giant sci-fi epic but like it's still a solid story it still feels appropriate for star trek its pacing is off but i mean honestly so many episodes of the original series were the same way it's still right like the changeling oh yeah it's (laughs) You know, Actually, it, it, the change thing is paced pretty well. It just is only one hour. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, it, it is kind of interesting because uh, you know my, my reaction is similar, and the the sort of thing that that I always thought was weird about it, though, you know, is that um, if you look at it stylistically, the original series always seemed very, very progressive to me, and it felt like it was made, being made yeah. by by young, up and coming filmmakers yeah. who were on the cutting edge and so formally formally it was regressive formally i think it was very regressive i think sure. in hindsight i think that robert wise was actually probably the wrong choice because what star trek lost by gaining wise and someone who was tried and true and tried and true and, and old hollywood and 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 everything like that was you essentially lost that cutting edge, you know. Well, there's a, that's there's a, there's a philosophical point of view of like the idea that 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 part of the character informed the stories, and by being sort of revolutionary upstarts in some ways that aren't obvious, that made their revolutionary upstart comment of possible futures more potent. And I think that that's that's an interesting argument, and maybe there's no way to win that fight and, when you yeah. get big money involved. I mean, like, I said this, you know, on, on uh, another thing, but, you know, not that he would do it, but it seems like the the appropriate choice for being true to the original series would have been to go with someone from, you know, young Hollywood, like Spielberg or, or George Lucas at the time, you know? Well, not, they tried, man. Well, I mean, they, they you know. <laughs> well, Spielberg and Lucas were they, they, I, they more tied in with Universal then. Yeah, they, well, they, think, they wouldn't yeah, have I done think, it. But someone like that, I think, would have been who they should have gone with, in yeah. my my personal opinion. But Well, but but again, I think it was the people running things had that attitude of we're going to, you know, bring out the velvet drapes and, you know, yeah. <laughs> we're going to go top notch on this. And who better? Let's get an Academy Award-winning director, right? You know, two-time. Exactly. I mean, you're looking at the marquee, uh, you know, aspect of it. Yeah, and and I don't fault Wise because he did what they hired him to do. Well, here's I just the think thing: he was, we, he was a bad fit with the franchise. Well, here's the thing too: before Star Wars, what was the biggest sci-fi movie of all time? I mean, was it 2001? I don't know. 2001. And if you think about it that way, motion picture is a very 2001 yeah. inspired movie. Yeah, that's true. The pacing, the visual effects, the enigma, 
factor of it. Well, the, the costumes, the pastels, was it's, still it's, it is, it in is the similar sin- in yeah. a lot of even contextual ways. Like it is right. a similar story, right? And it's you know it's very heavy on the metaphor and making you think what what's this representing and what are they after and you know nature of life and evolution and right and future <laughs> form for the human race and everything. Mm-hmm. Watching um, a spaceship slowly move for forty five minutes. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Now see. That was okay. There's two or three. I remember, you know, like right after the fact, this is up there, you know, like with the Con of Wrath as far as fans. It was Trek fans that gave, I'm pretty sure. I'd like to know who the first one was. You know, but after a few weeks had settled in and people got over the new real fast, you know, the Star Trek, the motionless picture, you know, mm-hmm. was one of the epithets that came out. Star Trek, the uh, slow motion picture. Yeah, yeah, Star Trek, the slow motion picture. So that, you know, you know, fandom is. Totally capable of eating its own, young, you know, when it, when it comes up. I just remember that at the time there were um, – I mean some of that had settled in. And some of this is – it's really weird because there was such a – I mean I was kind of kidding about it. But things did change very rapidly after this. The world was, was indeed speeding up, Coke or not. And, and there was a compression of New media and information. And we got, we got – started getting media relatively faster, not, you know, not on your – on your internet every two seconds fast or tweeted instantaneously but you know things were starting to speed up and the compression the wave of change and the awareness out there and all that and and going on but um at the time some of these things it took a while even for the after effects to filter in and like i said like knowing that well this was hot and it was the you know until the jj movie this was still the biggest grossing star trek movie ever which still amazes me but that's how that shows you how much 10 years of pent-up demand was. Yeah. And people – and that's all there was for a while, and there was nothing else to compare it to. And people just went back and back and back. And there was and this, there was a part of that was loyalty too, even though – I don't know how much – I mean people – I just think a lot of people got a sense that it wasn't as good as it could have been. But, um, but, they st- but it was what they fought for for 10 years, and they weren't about to like dish on it big time and lose it and not have another one. I mean, I, yeah. I'm trying to even remember thinking what, like, people came out and says, okay, well, that was pretty good, but wait till next year. I mean, I don't even think there was a lot of consciousness for the first few months about a second. I mean, maybe it was my age and being young, and maybe if I was 30, that was the first thing I would have thought about was, okay, now the next one can be, you know, yeah. kind of a thing. But here's another, another little bit was, because I have one of these. This was such a big deal, and we get back to the Star Trek NASA love affair, that the big glamour premiere of this besides one in LA in Hollywood the big glamour like east coast they premiered this at the air and space museum oh wow yeah yeah which is which itself was only about that, that only opened up like in 76 mm-hmm. that was like a bicentennial thing that it opened so the, the the air and space museum was only 3 years old yeah and i have a little matchbook from that evening but i remember going back and what seeing oh. pictures you know it was a big gala 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 thing and uh Anyway, but, but oh, budgeting. Some of the decisions that the studio made about motion picture, and then later on it got, it got beat up around the head. Remember that all the money that was spent on the TV prep of Phase 2 and all those – it's going to be a little movie. Well, it's going to be a bigger movie. Oh, it's going to be a TV series. Now it's back to being a little movie. Now it's going to be a huge major motion picture epic. All the money development, you know, the scripts we read about, oh, look, uh, the child was written. Anything that was paid out and paid for people who were on salary through the entire development page, they lumped under the motion picture yeah. to pay it. 
as, a, as an accounting thing. So when you see those huge numbers, oh, it cost X, you know, X amount of million of that, 30, 40, 50 million, whatever it was, was all phase two development that they stuck under that yeah. before you go talking about it being a bloated, you know. Right. It's budget. kind of like the Superman Returns thing, but um, yeah. Well, that's a kind of complicated well, narrative. Whatever, we won't get into but that. like, no, it was it was a weird <laughs> it was a weird historical moment of of Star Trek history when a bunch of different weird decisions were made in order to make this bizarre transformation possible, and in a lot of ways, it was a totally crazy decision to make this movie in lieu of Star Trek Phase Two because, on paper and historically, I mean, analysis of Phase Two indicates that it was probably going to be good. Maybe it's yeah. fairly easy to say that Phase Two would have been like at least a big chunk of what Next Gen turned out to be. Yeah, you talking about just just seeing what the scripts were. Yeah, yeah. Like it was it was it was ninety percent there. Like it was it was it was solid. It was it was going to be a thing worth talking about. And this transformation into a motion picture was a very weird decision. It might have even been the best business decision. It probably wasn't necessarily the best thing at the time. It might have actually ended up saving Star Trek on the whole because Phase Two probably would not have had the audience that it needed to have. Yeah, yeah. or if the if the network had failed, you know, yeah. if their fourth network had failed, or if they couldn't get it, you know, syndicated. The the I've tried to think of this point. This point pops into my head three times, and I keep forgetting it by the time I get to it. But part of what we see as the motion picture and talking about Phase 2 and the decision to take the pilot for Phase 2 and make it into a movie script. You know, oh, it's two hours now. Just fluff it up some. But, you know, it started off being here's Gene as an executive producer on a TV show, which he had done already. And he had people around him who either were new or they were old TV horses, you know, who had done it already. And... And when you took that, not only did you take it and just, oh, we're going to make a movie, not a, not a TV show. But re- again, get back to thinking the pressure that was on this. The pressure that this is Paramount's baby in the great sci-fi war of the late 70s. Yeah. You know, the great sci-fi box office pride and ego war of the Hollywood studios. And the pressure that was put on. And so when there's pressure and when a studio is investing that money, there's fingers in the pie. And a lot of politics. And so – and I don't so much think it's like Gene and, and – um, that it's Gene and Robert Wise fighting over stuff. But I know there's probably – there's all kinds of studio stuff coming in. And at first, there's a lot of, you know, sp- you know whatever it takes, let's do this right. You know, and then yeah. they love the stories about the, oh, going and getting the, uh, you know, the Ten Commandments fabric out of the vaults of Paramount for the – you know, all those goofy stories. Then – they don't have the story nailed down, you know, and then they have all the problems in shooting. They have the whole fiasco with the visual effects changeover, and then at the end, it's like, whatever it takes, throw money at it, just get it done. You know, it's like, just get th- – I mean, that's what it turned into. Just get this done. Get the fucking thing done, and in the damn theater on December 7th, we cannot afford to fuck this up. You know, and that's, that's kind of sadly what it turned into at the end. Anytime you have anything creative that starts off on such a high and ends up you know, where you're just grinding, grinding, grinding to get it done. I mean no. it's amazing on one hand. It's amazing that it's as good as it is. And I don't mean to botch the whole thing. It's, you know, and a lot of that's what the guys, when they did do the director's cut, the director's edition, we're trying to get back to that this has been unfairly harangued. You know, the slow motion picture, the motionless picture are all unfair. It was going to be tighter. There's vistas in here that never got to be realized because of the, the rush at the end. 
So I don't know if you guys heard this or not, but just in the news recently, there's news about a new book that's come out. The author's name is Preston Neal Jones, and I met him at a networking thing a couple weeks ago. I'm going to do an interview with him. But uh, he, I have a lot of empathy for him. He was a reporter who did a f- tons of – like 40, 50, 60 interviews for a magazine piece originally for Cinefex, Cinefantastique. Not Cinefex. There was a huge piece in Cinefex, which was like the best reporting in the day, which I – that was number – issue number one of Cinefex was all about the motion picture, and it's still the best reporting to this day God, Cinefex, until maybe Cinefex now because this awesome. huge piece that was for Cinefantastique never got published. And he had 40, 50 interviews with key people done at the time. And so that's finally come out into a book. And so there's a little side plug. It's nothing of mine. But, um, and yeah. I, I haven't got to read it yet. I'm going to get a copy and read it. Um, We've talked about this. And with, with more of those. But, um, you know, but when you look at the motion picture, on top of everything else, the other layer to factor in is the pressure that the studio put on it as here's our entry in the big sci-fi war. Don't screw it up. Don't let us down, and then it turned into <laughs> that end rush of just get over the finish line and have it be presentable because it's our baby, you know. And then it's almost like we'll talk about this later, young man, you know, <laughs> kind of a thing. And then at the talk about it later, young man, was you know, Paramount had gone through the studio change, and Charles Bloodhorn was running things. It was Gulf and Western. And uh, we're, yeah, of course we're going to do another Star Trek. That was the thing. It made so much money, it still could not be ignored. But now let's just get it back to being leaner and meaner. And, uh, and you know, they went so far as Wrath of Khan, they were going to have the TV division do. Right. You know, and release it as a small motion picture. But it got so good as they were watching the dailies that they amped it up a little bit. Yeah. So it, it, that's it, another story. <laughs> but um, it, there are so many things that it's just not fair to look at the motion picture as another box on the shelf. I mean, it is what it is as a movie, and it always has to stand as that. But it was such a pivotal – it's just like um, – it's like watching the cage turn into where no man's gone before or turn into um, a Corbmite maneuver. Yeah. You know, it's like, and it's like watching the J.J. movie. It's one of those pivotal – and then Wrath of Khan was the next movie, and it was almost as much a pivotal evolutionary moment as the motion picture was to begin with. Yeah. yeah. I think I, I do think that it is unfair to judge the motion picture on 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 like the, those terms alone because there, it is caught in a very weird moment in history, where like business and politics were. I mean, it's 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 a really weird thing, but for some reason everybody was thinking about this in the same way that everyone was thinking about the Cold War. Like, 20th Century Fox has their Sputnik. Let's pour money on this in order to get our own program going mm-hmm. because somehow these are the same thing. They're 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 equivalent. You pour money in it, and then we'll win this particular bizarre fictional space race. That's and and not the other how thing was, works. yeah, and and you know, the seventies were the late sixties and seventies were the time of the rise of the young you know rebel filmmaker, and that's what Lucas and Spielberg were in the day, you know, and a lot yeah. more then. And if we fund and someone, I don't enough, think Paramount had anybody. You were talking about this. I don't think Paramount had anybody they could go to. And I think their reaction to the young bucks was that, well, you know, Gene was not a young guy and Star Trek was, was 15 years old mm-hmm. as an entity. Yeah. It's like, you know, we don't need to have our young rebels. We're going to give this the full-blown – we're going to show you how a real Hollywood blockbuster's done. Right. And I, I don't know if that was a conscious thing or that's just the tools and the personnel. They, I think if everybody running the studio was over 50 and part of them either – I don't know if it was a matter of not trusting or maybe just not understanding, and there was nobody in the room. I, I, you know, you, we need a good Paramount film historian to, to answer this, but here's some questions, and I'm just quasi-guessing this, just 
you know, the things that I've taken in over the years, I'm half guessing, but I'm half going on my old feeling that Paramount didn't have any young rebels in the toolbox. Yeah. And even if they had, I don't even think it was, a, it may not even have been a conscious decision. It may have just been that's, that was their world. Because Paramount was kind of a sleepier studio. It wasn't on the cutting. And they weren't doing TV. They didn't even have like that edge feeding people into motion picture like yeah. Warners and Universal did. It was you know, then so, what MGM is now. Yeah, I mean, you think about Coppola doing Godfather for them, but that was totally his baby. Yeah. That mm-hmm. was not a studio movie, you know. I mean, some of the other hits that Paramount did have were more like one-off things where they were lucky and had a, had a director sign. Yeah. But I think the think tank of the studio was, like you said, your old guys in suits puffing on their cigars, chomping, and, you know, and it's like kind of like, uh, what's, what's a sci-fi thing? Come on, get us a sci-fi guy. We've got one. Oh, okay. Let's go with that. Go with that, TV. <laughs> you know, kind of a thing. Yeah. And not really knowing, you know, nobody under 30 getting it. Oh, my God. It and, is uh, the Hunsucker proxy with the Enterprise in it. <laughs> <laughs> so, um... I have an idea. It's a circle, also with two tubes. <laughs> <laughs> yep. For kids. So, <laughs> What, what about Egyptians, Harlan? Can you, can you get some pyramids? <laughs> no, I will not. <laughs> you know that story, right? I yeah. love that story. Yeah. I have told that story. His idea, and the guy's all taken up with Rendezvous with Rama had just yeah. come out. And he's like, he was like, really? I mean, that's your quintessential get you background. I mean, you know. Anyway, I'm pretty sure it was where, Mayans. That was, the, that was the deal. Yes, 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 Mayans. Sorry. Can sorry. you work Mayans in there? And he says yeah. no. And they fired him. And he was totally fine with that. <laughs> So, so, Larry, uh, any final thought thoughts on uh, Robert Wise and his work on Star Trek: The Motion Picture? Well, I know, and I I got to know the guys working on the director's edition pretty well, and I know that. I mean, you know, Robert Wise is Robert Wise. You can't take Sound of Music and West Side Story and Day the Earth Stood Still and everything else he did away from him. Mm-hmm. But I know that I think the motion picture kind of stuck in his craw as the years even went by, and he was he was you know he was in his but 50s, 60s when he did it. Yeah. Um, and I know he was glad that the director's edition somewhat redeemed people's view of it. It's still hard to lick that third act. <laughs> <laughs> but there's a lot more of the vista put back into the movie, I think. It's just sad that you know now the world wants HD, and just 10 years ago they didn't have the budget. They knew that was coming, and they couldn't do anything about it. They made the conscious decision not to spend, or they didn't have the extra money to spend, and they did the biggest thing they could do, so... You know, it would have to go, be gone back, and it would have to go go back through and redo all of those effects, which is why people gripe about not getting it in all these Blu-ray releases. Yeah, that's why. You know, you have yeah. to still go back and have a copy of that director's edition uh, DVD. But I know that it kind of stuck with him over the years, and he died just within a you know year or two of of this director's edition coming out. He was around for all the hoopla and the launch and the release of of this one, but. Um, uh yeah I I it, it, like I said it's not on one hand movies have to stand on their own but there's so much about the motion picture that was a product of the time and the you know it was like the double edged sword the very you know the Lord giveth and Lord Star Wars giveth and Star Wars taketh away and <laughs> and Star Wars was made possible by Star Trek it's just a weird symbiosis there and then Star Trek got green lighted and then fell victim to the same panic over Hollywood that. Star Wars created in everybody. <laughs> yeah. And of course, Spielberg responds with, you know, Close Encounters and uh, 
and then E.T. a few years later, and uh, Disney responds with the black hole. Man. So, you know, motion oh. here, that's, there's your bumper sticker. Star Trek, the motion picture. Hey, it ain't the black hole. I, I, am, I am on board with that. That is a very solid, uh, that's a good catchphrase. It ain't the black hole. Deal with it, America. I guess that's our our episode title. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I still like the black hole. (laughs) What what about you, Max? Uh, Final thoughts? Um, Like this is a weird thing. Like I don't know. We get into this like all the time on this question of like can like can you can you do A while also doing B? And I think historically speaking, you kind of can't. And 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 this was a weird thing of of somebody trying to do. A and a bunch of people expecting B were disappointed, and I think that's totally fair to be disappointed. It's also totally fair to defend it and say that it's stupid to be disappointed because ultimately we're talking about different types of reactions to different aspects of a thing. And if you want to argue that Star Trek: The Motion Picture stands out as a problem, then that's true. But it's not Robert Wise's fault because honestly, he could have thrown everything good about Star Trek out, and Paramount would have said fine. And he didn't. And ultimately, I think we have to kind of go, well, at the very least, he had a perfectly solid opportunity to discard everything that we care about, and he didn't. And maybe, honestly, that's that's the best thing he possibly could have done. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I agree that I, you, you can't blame Robert Wise for, for what this movie was. I just think that um, hiring Robert Wise was probably a mistake because I'm not necessarily sure that that was the direction the franchise should have gone in. But uh, I think, you know, looking at it on its own, I, I, I think it, it, it works pretty well. And um, I, I do think that it is interesting. I mean, in this whole conversation, the thing that kind of struck me more than anything else was, um, Larry, your experiences with this movie when it came out strangely mirror, I think, at least my experiences with uh, the release of uh, Episode One. Same age, same build up to the hype, and kind of the same reaction coming out of it. And it's it's really interesting how how those things sort of. Uh, oh, yeah. Um, but uh, but I do yeah, not feel that way. No. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like like listening to, to Larry talk about this, it, it I was like I could almost track it beat for beat with my experiences with with Episode One. But regardless, anyway. You're talking about Star Wars, right? Star Wars episode yeah, the, one, that, yes. that other thing. <laughs> not, <laughs> that, not that Firefly other franchise. Or, uh, no, no, yeah, no, no. Yeah, yeah. Farscape movie. Or, no. Uh, okay. just, just Is there a Farscape sure. movie? Probably. Just making sure. Yeah, no, I'm probably. just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> so, oh, God, those fans are going to give a us a hard time is released, <laughs> The fact that a franchise is, released, is reduced to being referred to as episode one and episode two. I mean, at least it's, with Star Trek, at least say Star Trek three or four, if you don't want to say the whole title. But Yes, yes. Yeah. So, so Larry, uh, and anything out there that you, you people should know about? I know you've got a new uh, Trekland on speaker thing that just came out, right? Yeah, yeah my my third CD, Trekland on on uh, speaker, is about the finale of DS Nine. So we have um, speaking of back in the day interviews, back in the day with Ira Bear and Ron Moore and um, Dan Curry and Gary Hutzel. Yeah. From visual effects, it's pretty awesome, uh, and that's at you know at my site, my com website, and uh, I think I mentioned I'm I'm going to get to go to um, well El Paso this weekend, probably too late to hear, and uh, looking forward to being at Destination London the first of October, 
And we're about to go back to um, Houston, finally, and shoot some more on the Con of Wrath right. mm-hmm. uh, and, and go to a conference. And I, had a, I just had my – finally had my newsletter go out for the first time in ages because I kept trying to update my address list. And I was getting so many names from the con, summer cons on manual <laughs> analog writing it on a piece of paper that it took me forever to get it updated, and I kept waiting. So I finally sent out a newsletter. Um, so thanks, anybody that's listening. And if you want to just go to LarryNemichek.com and sign up, and I supposedly do one a month, but that dragged this year. But I had a lot of things in there too, and, and one of them was I had a call for transcribers for sit-down interviews for the Con of Wrath. And I've had about a dozen people respond, and people are helping out with that, so if anybody's interested in doing that. Okay. And um, um, my the, and I, the cons are over, so the Trekland trunk is open, so if you're interested in – Studio, you know, scripts and uh, drafts and blueprints and and uh, oddball promotional items and really obscure things. Um, come over to the Facebook page and just click in, and that's how you can find out about it. And I don't have to be the used car salesman talking about it all over the internet. So there's all that, and then Enterprise in Space is about to launch. So everybody, please um, be watching your news here the next week. We're going to have a huge, huge. Um, Launch. Hopefully, I think we finally got the the website is fine. It's not my deal, but the website's finally ready to go, being tweaked. So we'll be watching for the news. You can actually go to the Facebook page right now. But this is the grassroots actual orbital space mission with a contest designed orbiter, several million dollars budget, no crowdfunding except we're just saying two people. If two million people around the world send twenty dollars. This will make it happen. But there's a lot of corporate space technology donors, science educators, big outreach to science kids. All the science aboard it is going to be science students, K through grad school, getting a chance to not only win their designs but having it be sent up for free. And then the design contest is a contest. Um, the mission patch is going to be a contest, and it's it's flies in four years. It'll take that long to uh, – the booster will probably be from SpaceX, and SpaceWorks will probably build a little orbital capsule. And at the end, uh, we retrieve it. And the people, everybody who gave their $20, no Kickstarter, just a one-time thing, aside from getting to follow everything uh, and getting a little certificate, your name goes on a chip. But um, it'll be finally, we said, finally a real enterprise will fly in space because even the shuttle orbiter you know, was, was a test ship. So it honors all the ships named Enterprise from the battleships on, and it honors all science and science fiction inspiration that's ever inspired people. And it's a, it's a hand-on to the new generation of science kids and giving them a way to get their science up. And also it's a test bed for some of the uh, science development tech companies to, uh, to throw some new technology at the thing. So it's very – and they asked me about six months ago if I'd help promote it at the cons. And uh, so I'm the promotion manager now. And um, – having a hand in things. So we'll be doing a lot of podcasts. We're, we're doing one with Chris. Uh, the leader of this is a guy who just thought we should have a real enterprise in space and it should help science kids and, and be a showpiece. And can, is this doable? And it's, he's got an army. Now, the National Space Society just endorsed it as the mother organizing group, although the team has been together for three years, long before I got aboard. And... Um, it's just going to be pretty exciting. So everybody just stay tuned and watch for the news and jump on. I mean, if you want to give more than $20, you can. But it's not about, you know, levels and are you going to give it this level. It's just, it's just a very democratic, small-D, uh, grassroots, worldwide thing, um, you know, spread out that way. So 
very exciting and, and giving back to the inspiration that science fact and science fiction has, has given all of us. Cool. It is cool. Yeah, on board. for sure. Well, thank you very much for joining us. We, we really do appreciate it. Always. And, sure uh, thing, guys. It's yeah. fun. Any As usual, of- you, got me, you got my brain peeled back to remember <laughs> things I might not have remembered. Just, you know, cold turkey. So thanks. <laughs> Excellent. All yeah. right. Well, it's been fun talking to Larry about Robert Wise and Star Trek The Motion Picture, but mm-hmm. this is just one of the things that we're talking about on Trek FM this week. So here's a quick look at what you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, Standard Orbit. They, they look at the original series episodes, and they see thematically what it is that works, and they pick that in order to explore, like, a different side of it. Earl Grey. No, do you guys seriously no. not know why they have red and green light? No. Not all of us have read Ships of the Line. Okay, no, 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 no. Wait, wait, is this in Ships of the up... Line? I'm only in, like, chapter no, one. No, no. I'm talking about, like, real ships today. Have okay. you been on a ship, Darren? The Orb. Them being adversarial, I, I don't think necessarily was the only way they could have gone. Um, it makes for a great story, but it just made me wonder, just an impossible universe, what would have happened? I think it's important, though, that she, as the religious leader, is not sold on the idea that this outsider is their emissary. To the journey! Endgame cannot make my list. <laughs> I, uh, I don't have as much hatred for Endgame as you <laughs> or apparently everybody else does. Oh, I've, not that I'm bitter or anything, no. Warp 5. So I would argue in the case of what Paxton is doing here in firing a weapon at San Francisco, which luckily missed and went into the bay, and I don't know if I guess George and Gracie aren't there, right, in the 22nd century, so they're okay, but... The Ready Room. They could have really diverged with what we knew of Will and made Thomas's own unique character. I mean, he is, but, like, if we can get multiple Burial episodes, why, you know, why can't Thomas Riker <laughs> have more than one episode? Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. And he happens to figure it all out. Uh, that, that's enough to drive an audience. We know we need to get Will Wheaton on the show because I will defend Wesley in this episode against the guy who played Wesley. <laughs> okay. Commentary, Trek stars. There was an interview, I think, with, with JJ where they were talking to him and he was saying that, you know, oh, my, my dad was friends with Nicholas Meyer back in the day. I remember going to Meyer's house when I was a kid. And he saw he had a whole bunch of really cool things in his house, and I thought, I would like to break some of these. Literary treks. But I do I like want to see cover. Spock with a perm. Oh, gosh. Well, I think I've got a Photoshop project in my future with this cover right here. Melodic treks. It's like, oh, this wow. happened. Oh, oh, this is so good. <laughs> it was. No it was just that amazing. That's how she uh, reacts. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out these shows to get in on the Daily Trek Talk. You'll find them on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, the Windows Podcast Directory for Xbox and Zune, or you can stream them from the website. Just visit Trek.fm to get all the links. As always, you can find us right here on Trek.fm where we do this show. You can also find me on Trek.fm doing Standard Orbit with Drew. And you can find both of us on CommentaryTrackStars.com where we do commentary track stars off topic with Brandon uh, this week. We is our um, season premiere, 
Uh, we don't. Are know. you asking me or telling me? This? Sort of both. Okay. Um, well, that we, sounds right. Yeah, we don't really know what we're talking about. Might be a day or two late this week. I apologize for that again. But, you know. Um, also, that seems a good time to float the idea that maybe would would the audience be objectively eliminated commentary from our names because I think it's really hard to say all of these freaking titles. I'm sure if we want to shorten it to Trek Stars, verbally we mm-hmm. can. I think if we were to change it anywhere else, it would kind of mess up everything. Yeah, maybe. Also on, on commentarytrackstars.com, you can find our commentary for Star Trek: The Motion Picture, which we did with Charlene from To the Journey. You're not supposed to say it like that. To the journey. Yeah, that's right. When it's kind of forced and weird. Yeah. That's the level you have to go to. Okay. So anyway, that's over there. If you want to uh, get a more in-depth look at Star Trek, the motion picture, just head over to commentarytrackstars.com. We, we talk plain, mainly about how all of the scenarios in the movie are silly. Yeah, but we, there's some pretty solid analysis of the philosophy and stuff like that in there, too. Really? It's a good commentary. I just remember making jokes about the Borg. Well, there's that, too. Yeah. It's, a, it's something for everyone. It's a long movie, you know? Oh, no. And that freaking nasal. Mm. Oh, that drives me crazy. I still think about how neither of you saw that. It drove me nuts. Yeah. <sighs> anyway. I need to take a nap now. Um... If you want to give us some feedback, you can email us at comtrackstars at gmail.com, or you can also um, send us feedback through the website. There's a little tab on the side of the page to send us an email. Um, You can also leave us a review on iTunes, or you can hit us up on Twitter at comtrackstars. Before we go... We'd like to ask everyone to please support our sponsor who helps us bring commentary, Trek Stars, to you each week. And our sponsor for this show is Audible.com. Audible is a great way for you to read all of the books you've always wanted to read but never thought you'd have the time for. Audible is the premier source for audiobooks with more than 150,000 titles to choose from and new titles coming every week from classics to current bestsellers and even some of the most famous Star Trek books like Prime Directive, and Federation, Audible has something for everyone. It's even got some stuff about the making of Star Trek The Motion Picture. Like that seems impossible. Star Trek Movie Memories by William Shatner. Isn't re- that from before books? No, I don't think so. It was written by him. It was narrated by him. It's four hours and 43 minutes long. Wow, that sounds like a good thing to listen to. Audible says, the sequel to the best-selling Star Trek Memories, documenting in deliciously lurid and candid detail all the -the behind-the-scenes shenanigans in the making of the six Star Trek movies, with on-the-scene reporting from the set of the seventh, in which Kirk dies. Okay, that, that description was deliciously lurid. It was. And by that I mean, I want to vomit now. (laughs) I've read this book. Mm-hmm. And it's awesome. Yeah, I've always wanted to read it. I just um, haven't got around to it. Yeah, too many things. There's a, there's a lot of interesting behind the scenes stuff in there about like how Nicholas Meyer got involved with Star Trek Six and stuff like that. See, that sounds interesting. I'd yeah. be interested in that, but I'm also but I'm mainly interested in like the places where people. Um, blew up at each other and uh, and, and threw cups across the room. It's got some of that, too. And fired Kirstie Alley. Yeah, it's got some of of that, too. Yeah. But it's it's really good. I would definitely recommend it. And you can get it for free 
since you're a Trek FM listener. As a Trek FM listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice, along with a 30-day trial to see just how great Audible is. So give it a try today. Catch up on all those classic Star Trek books you've yet to read, and that latest novel from your favorite author as well. Just go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and sign up today. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash trekfm, and we thank Audible for supporting Commentary, Trek Stars, and trek.fm. Speaking of which, you know, just figure we'd throw this in there because it's kind of news. Which are we speaking of? Of of William Shatner making Star Trek movies. Oh, okay. There's a rumor going around the internet started by uh, Devin Faraci over at Badass Digest. Uh, there are lots of rumors on the internet. Yes, but this one. Have you heard about Obama? He's an alien. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, that's true, but that that's a rumor, but. This one involves William Shatner being in the new Star Trek movie. Apparently, there is a scene in the script in which William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy are together. But they say that um, this scene is integral to the story. And therefore, um, they're hoping that they can lure Shatner into making it. Which I think makes sense. It's the 50th anniversary, blah, 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 blah. It's a nice way of tying it in for all of the fans, not just the new ones. And I don't quite get that. I thought that William Shatner didn't need to be wooed. I thought he was into it. Uh, well, you know, he likes to play hard to get. Oh, I get it. Yeah. He's a trap. <laughs> anyway, there's one more way that you can support us here at Trek FM, and that's uh, through Patreon, which is kind of like Kickstarter, but on a monthly basis. Um, if you go to patreon.com slash trekfm, you can donate, and there are um, certain rewards for donating, just like on Kickstarter. You can see what the goals are on, on, the, uh, on the page as well, so you can see what your money is going towards. And uh, some of the things that you can get are pretty cool. Even for just a few dollars a month, you can get exclusive bonus content, um, which isn't available anywhere else. Some and of it's pretty great. Yeah, if we if we get around to making it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's then, amazing stuff that we haven't done yet. Although we, we have a plan now, at least for this show. But other people have, right? I'm pretty sure that other people have made something. Uh, not not that I'm aware of what yet. What a bunch of lazy bastards. Well, well no, I know that, that, <laughs> that a lot of people have been saving stuff for just this occasion. Oh. Outtakes. Like everything. our nude calendar. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, <laughs> well, donate enough, people. Yeah, but I mean, like, we're talking about But not that much, because you don't want that. Since since we, you know, used to do commentaries, hence the name commentary, mm-hmm. Trek Stars, uh, we, we thought that maybe we could do commentaries for some movies that we cover um, on this show. Yes. So, like, for example, we just did Houdini, an episode on Houdini. Maybe, you know, we can do a simultaneous release where if you want to delve further into the world of Houdini, you can listen to our full-length audio commentary for Houdini. If you are a Houdini. Patreon patron, oh. and a so, Houdini fan, so we're gonna we're gonna um, work on that. In the meantime, if you want a taste of what we're talking about, head over to commentarytrackstars.com and check out our Star Trek the Motion Picture commentary. Anyway, yeah, why not? It's super. It's, I remember it being fun doing it. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's not bad. Oh, we talk. Yeah. Oh yeah, I'm remembering more now. It, it, is, it is a good commentary. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway. 
patreon.com slash trekfm. Head over there. Help us out. We would greatly appreciate it. Well, that's about it for Robert Wise's work on Star Trek. We will be back next week with the second part of this little two-part miniseries. It's our 100th episode, and we're going to be covering Robert Wise's work as an editor, as an Oscar-nominated editor, on what many believe to be the best motion picture of all time, Citizen Kane.